And here we are again with the green majority. Go, 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 gadget. Green majority. I will be eliminating the word gadget. Um, I forgot what I was going to say, which is why I said go, go, gadget. Um, that's embarrassing. Um, CIUT 89.5 FM. That's where we are. Or on your beautiful local community radio station, wherever you happen to be, or on your chosen podcast platform, perhaps the Harbinger Media Network. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I sit here with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. How you doing? Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour is not here because Stefan has himself, he has, he has, he has hogtied himself wow. a live one. I mean, is he has action? he has lassoed his sprinting prey and come up with a Dr. Milan Ilnitsky. He recently completed his PhD at U of T, and his PhD is in the fossil fuel divestment movement from 2011 to 2020. 2012 to 2020. From 2012 to 2020. And so that sounds like a very comprehensive project. Yeah, it's about only Canadian fossil divestment. He talked to divestment organizers across the world, but uh, was encouraged to mostly to focus his PhD work on the Canadian context. Well, not only is it comprehensive, but it is clear and focused. Oh, yeah. And there's a reference in it uh, to Radiohead. So look out for that. Hail to the thief. I mean, just you'll get there. Um, so if you've ever wanted to know everything there is to know about the Canadian divestment movement. Uh, you, you learn a lot about the divestment movement, for sure, but you also learn about things that people might not often think about. For example, the ways in which influence exists within um, within universities and, and, and what actually causes universities to act and what, and what doesn't and how, they, and how the broader movement can have more impact sometimes than any individual action, or at least that's what some of the, the research seems to suggest. Simply based on the structure of the power within the university in question? Well, and, and just like when you see particular universities deciding to divest compared to when actions were and stuff like that. Mm. I see. The timing. Yeah. All right. And do we have anything else to say before we go into the interview? I would love to hear people's thoughts about this conversation and, and where you might fall on some of the some of the topics that we, I'd say, we debate. Shoot me a tweet. Okay. And without further ado, we move to Stefan's hour-long interview with Dr. Milan Ilnitsky, recently graduated from the University of Toronto with a PhD studying the fossil fuel divestment movement in Canada from 2012 to 2020. I am here with Dr. Milan Ilnitsky, who is a recent PhD grad and who did their thesis on the divestment movement between 2012 and 2020. And we have been talking about this on our show a fair amount over the past six months, and also talking with some people who are sort of, actually a couple weeks ago, we started talking to some folks who are sort of the next phase of the divestment movement. And so this sort of look back and getting a deep dive into understanding how the last eight years was really interesting to us. So thank you so much for being here in Milan. Thank you for giving me the chance to come back on the show and talk about the fossil fuel divestment movement. Yeah, as you mentioned, you yeah, you've been on the show. You would would have been on the show when we were doing the show live and probably like during some of these campaigns themselves, actually. I was on with Darren Kaster in February 26, 2013 to talk about right. the Toronto350.org campaign. So right at the beginning of this sort of eight years that you've sort of reviewed and so, but we'll get into that, um, and we'll get into sort of both the, your experience within U of T and your your PhD, which is a much more broad understanding. But let's start with the history, you know, um, because your thesis does cover the divestment movement over the years of 2012 to 2020. And so, what made you decide that 2012 was sort of your starting point for the movement? Thank you. Um, if people want to follow along, my dissertation is available on my website, which is sindark.com, S-I-N-D-A-R-K. You can find it on the front page. So my involvement with 350.org began in the summer of 2011. You might remember that for 15 days, they were holding a direct action outside the White House, protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. 
So I went down as a volunteer and worked as a photographer every day, photographing the people being arrested and then released and then trained. At the time, I was leaving the federal government to start a PhD, and I wrote my applications based on studying pipeline resistance, based on what I had seen at that, uh, at that protest. In June 2012, before I started the PhD, I was one of the people who 350.org invited to the Radiohead concert in Toronto. They had a staff member who was traveling with the band, helping to set up local chapters of 350.org. I'm sure listeners will remember that that was the, uh, the incident where the stage collapsed and killed drum technician Scott, Scott Johnson. But those of us who were invited began meeting on Tuesdays, and that was the beginning of Toronto350.org. Then in July 2012, Bill McKibben, the co-founder of 350.org, put out an article in Rolling Stone magazine called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math, which highlighted this huge disjoint between how much coal, oil, and gas we know exists on the planet and how much we can safely burn without drastically, catastrophically damaging the climate. So that introduces these concepts of stranded assets and the carbon bubble. A bubble is a situation where the value of some asset is artificially inflated, but in a temporary way that's going to be undermined. And stranded assets are those that an investor or a corporation thinks are going to keep producing value for a long period of time. But actually, because we need to abolish fossil fuel use, they're not going to function for that length of time. So it makes this financial case about why continuing to invest in fossil fuels is such a mistake. So given that I was starting at U of T, it was natural that Toronto 350 started organizing a U of T divestment campaign. In fact, I was the one who that fall walked into the office of the president to request official copies of their divestment policies and begin a dialogue with them. There's more history of the early movement in chapter two of my dissertation. The first people who used this kind of general tactic were Swarthmore Mountain Justice, a group in Appalachia that was resisting mountaintop res um, removal coal mining. But the kind of the factors that came together to create this campus fossil fuel divestment movement were Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein saw that initiative by Swarthmore. They recalled the movement against apartheid in South Africa, and they had read a report by the Carbon Tracker Initiative on the carbon bubble. So putting those ideas together is what led to that Rolling Stone article and to the Do the Math tour where 350.org promoted the start of the divestment movement in 2012. Man, that's interesting. I didn't. I did not know the bit of history about the Radiohead tour of actually trying to seed and bring together people using sort of the the draw of Radiohead to do this is a really interesting way to actually maybe build community and and to start things in a way that is unique. I've seen some other promoters trying to sort of find ways to help local groups, but this seems a much more proactive and much more involved way to do it. It's something that 350.org has been really good at at coming up with ways of initiating campaigns that don't take all that much resources on their side, but which rely on spreading the idea and large numbers of self-organized groups doing the actual implementation. And so you got into it a little bit, but perhaps you can expand slightly on how your personal journey sort of maps onto this eight-year period. Yeah, so 2012 is more or less when the movement began. In 2020, I mostly stopped collecting data in order to write up my results. It's always a challenge to work in an area that has so much contemporary interest and so many developments. I, I literally can't look at the front page of any newspaper nowadays without seeing something that's relevant to these questions of climate change and fossil fuels and investment. My media monitoring in the period until I stopped uh, produced a single-spaced bibliography of 281 pages which really shows how the divestment movement and related issues have received huge media attention. And in part, I think that reflects the psychological savvy of the strategy. There's something about climate change as an accidental consequence of things that we think are good that makes us less motivated to act on it. Like, you know, yes, that flight produced greenhouse gas emissions, but it was good to go visit grandma. And yes, your home produces greenhouse gas emissions to stay warm, but we all want warm homes. But what the framing that 350.org provided was, you know, this fossil fuel industry isn't just a neutral provider of a useful product to humanity. They've been aware of the consequences of using their product, the climate change that's being created, and they've worked to deceive the public and decision makers. So there's this strategy of enemy naming 
where you identify that a specific group is knowingly, culpably responsible for what's happening. And that motivates us much more psychologically. We're much more concerned about stopping someone who's cheating or, uh, or causing harm in, uh, through deception than we are about inadvertent secondary effects. Of course, a lot has happened for me personally over this period of time. I had my three years as a resident junior fellow at Massey College. During the first three years of my PhD, I was definitely putting a lot more time and effort into climate change activism and divestment than into anything else. But uh, when I completed my PhD coursework, I had to step back from Toronto350.org uh, when I had to rewrite my first comprehensive exam. But under Stuart Basden, Toronto350.org grew um, to the point that we brought 300 people on rented buses to the People's Climate March in New York City in 2014. Subsequent to that, uh, I had mentioned how Toronto 350 was a citywide group and not just a campus group, but people who wanted to really focus on the campus and the U of T campaign created a new U of T 350 chapter. And then in 2016, when President Gertler rejected the Toronto 350 U of T 350 campaign, uh, that group essentially ceased to exist. But former members of Toronto 350 and U of T 350 are now involved with the Leap Manifesto Group's campaign um, targeting three federated colleges at the University of Toronto, uh, with Climate Justice Toronto, and also with the Divestment and Beyond campaign that mostly um, staff and faculty have been organizing. After the Trump election, I decided with my supervisor that I couldn't provide adequate participant protection to people resisting pipelines in the US and Canada that any kind of research crossing the border would create risks that we couldn't mitigate. So I was urged to change my topic to divestment because I knew the background and the people involved. Let's go back to the divestment piece then for a bit, because it has been, I think, like a lot of activists that you'll meet right now came from a divestment space. I think divestment movement was one of the the big part of the keystone might have been like if you're if you're if you are a person who was getting into climate in 2008, you're more likely to have done keystone work by 2012. You're more likely to have done divestment work. And, you know, you're all these sort of rotation of different sort of hot spots that sort of gain energy and sort of bring more people into the movement. But for those who you know haven't been following or don't know the history, can you talk a little bit about some of the hallmark characteristics of the early divestment campaigns and what parts would you say that were successful and what parts would you say? you know, didn't work as, as well as might hope. I've been consistently struck by the great similarity of campaigns in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. 350.org and other groups like the Canadian Youth Climate Coalition provided a campaign in a box with specific common goals, tactics, and messaging. Tactics do vary over time in terms of how contentious they are, but I wouldn't say that the earlier campaigns were systematically more or less contentious than the later ones. In chapter four of my dissertation, I cover the spectrum of tactics um, that were employed by all of the campaigns. And certainly they varied across time and between each other, but not in a way that's as simple as the early campaigns were all one way and the late campaigns were all a different way. Um, in terms of assessing what worked, I think we need to be clear about the goals we're discussing. Um, I've identified three core goals for the movement, which, um, are also reflected in some other literature, like um, what Michelle Marcus has done at UBC. And those three are, one, and most directly, to redirect investment away from fossil fuels by changing institutions' investment policies. Secondly, to delegitimize the fossil fuel industry in the eyes of the public and policymakers. That's that delegitimization enemy naming piece. And thirdly, the movement building piece to build a cadre of new climate organizers uh, who hold the climate justice worldview. Now, these are all worthwhile, but they can be in tension with each other. Most obviously, university administrators um, are likely to become defensive when confronted with very confrontational tactics. And I would say they're more likely to be persuaded using concepts, language, and messaging styles that they use themselves, saying, you know, this is about fiduciary duty and financial risk. If governments are going to start acting on climate change and shutting down these fossil fuel projects, we shouldn't be investing in them. But that kind of a campaign, a kind of inside game focused campaign, does less to delegitimize the industry because universities aren't going to come out and say Shell and ExxonMobil are wicked. And it does less to recruit activists because people are less 
excited, less motivated by the idea of doing a bunch of research and bureaucratic meetings with the administration. The two approaches can certainly work together. I think all the campaigns I looked at tried to use a hybrid of inside game tactics focused on negotiating with the people who actually have the power to divest and outside game tactics where you build support in the community. But there are contradictions and tensions between the two. Like the more you do to fire up activists and really delegitimize the industry, probably the harder it's going to be to actually achieve the narrow institutional aim of the campaign. Let's get real academic for half a second, because uh, your thesis uses the phrase or the term, the contentious politics theoretical framework. Can you explain what that framework uh, is and, and how it informed your research? Absolutely. Thank you. So there are always some hazards trying to explain a PhD dissertation to non-academics, non-PhD students. One of the things that generally your supervisory committee will expect you, expect you to bring to a project is a theoretical framework or some kind of a school or interpretation that you're going to use to give structure to what you say and how you conduct your, your study. So in terms of how scholars have come at these kinds of questions, social movements have been interest, of interest to scholars of politics maybe as long as people have been studying politics, whether that's how did Christianity spread in the Roman Empire or where did the Protestant Reformation come from and what consequences did it have? Or how did the movements for women's rights and racial equality and sexual equality um, become so successful and what's holding them back in some places? So there's a broad category of social movement scholarship. At the same time, scholars of politics are interested in conflict and contention. Traditionally, that's been focused on wars between states but there's also enormous scholarship on civil wars, on other kinds of conflict and disagreement. So at, at the point of overlap between social movements and contention, there's a theoretical framework that's informed by sociological ideas and research practices, and particularly associated with the scholars Douglas McAdam, Charles Tilley, and Sidney Tarot uh, in the 1990s. And the framework chiefly provides a set of metaphors for understanding politics as theater, Activists are like actors who are trying to persuade an audience of policymakers and their fellow citizens to take actions that they otherwise wouldn't. So activists employ repertoires, just like a theatrical troupe, which are consistent and stylized forms of interaction, which have shared meanings between movements and populations. People know what a protest means or a sit-in or uh, similar kinds of actions. So the framework helped me to derive a set of questions that I used when creating my interview questions for participants. Uh, and they come from some of these central concepts in contentious politics, like there's a structure of political opportunities that basically determines where it's possible to make a political change, where it's worth devoting your time. Like this increased concern about climate change, particularly the financial case against future fossil fuel investment. You could see that as as these political opportunities that the campaign in a box and the divestment movement emerge to respond to. Another of these metaphors is mobilizing structures, which is basically how activists organize themselves. One feature of this movement that derives a lot from the Occupy movement and the general preference of leftist activists to avoid lots of hierarchy and formality was they chose this non-hierarchical, horizontal decision-making process. And so asking people questions about, did you have rules? Did you have elected positions? How did you make decisions? What did you do when there was a conflict? Those were the kinds of questions that the framework helped direct me toward. But the most important contest is over framing, that question of worldviews, how a problem is perceived, what its causes are thought to be, and the program of action that's proposed in response. And this is where you see the sharp distinction between the two worldviews that I identify within the movement the climate justice and the CO2 energy or the climate energy perspectives. The central claim of climate justice is about intersectionality, that climate change is just one symptom of systematic global injustices and that only a radical political and economic change that eliminates those injustices can actually produce a stable climate. So in that view, to produce climatic stability, you have to overthrow capitalism, patriarchy, colonialism. 
in my view, I think those arguing in that position provide a lot less information about what comes next and exactly why their alternative system won't see the same benefits from fossil fuels that every country in the world does now. In the CO2 energy view, the problem is where we get our energy from and the bad effects that has. So the solution is new energy sources, not a global political revolution. And you can easily see how the agendas of those two groups would be incompatible in the context of a campaign that's deciding what to do. You know, a minor tweak to how the university interprets fiduciary duty might be enough to warn them off of continuing to invest in fossil fuels. But if the real aim is to replace the global system, uh, that kind of incrementalism doesn't have much appeal to climate justice advocates. So just to sum up, the theoretical framework helped me link this project to existing scholarly discourses on social movements and contentious politics. And it helped me come up with a set of questions that, um, that let me extract useful information from participants about how their particular campaigns function. Cool. So I'm wondering if, in your experience, if you noticed a difference in between how effective those were at actually mobilizing people and in actually generating a, enough support to sort of push forward, you know, because like, again, this from my sort of experience, what I've seen is the, the growing of the, of the understanding of sort of what climate justice is has been quite effective in growing a movement. And that has arguably yielded pretty significant results in terms of actually getting closer to zero carbon than had we sort of really stepped back and tried to only talk about a zero carbon thing which might not actually have yielded enough of an actual push to sort of get this on the agenda in the first place. And so, yeah, did you see how that played out or or what did your research tell you about that sort of dynamic? Yeah, thank you. This gives me a chance to address one of the most frequent misconceptions about my research. Most of the academic research out there on climate justice is very positive about it and sees it as this great development. Um, I describe some of the reasons why people see it that way, and in particular, how powerfully motivational it is. Uh, but I'm not saying that the climate justice people are wrong and the CO2E people have the whole thing worked out. There are problems with both views, and the question you just asked really lets us highlight them. The climate justice view has the strength that it's highly motivational. You tell people that, you know, this is going to help with all the things you're concerned about, from the inequitable job market and housing to racial discrimination. And that makes people feel like their, all of their personal objectives are related to the movement um, and that it's important to win and that you'll, you'll achieve numerous benefits from doing so. But the big drawback is how unfocused that is. You know, I've been on some 350.org planning calls where the topic of fossil fuel and energy never comes up because they're so focused on social justice issues and all kinds of other intersectionally connected questions. The CO2 energy view on the other side largely lacks that motivational character. Uh, it doesn't impassion people the same way, but whereas the climate justice view is very unfocused and doesn't necessarily have a clear answer about how are you actually going to provide humanity with energy without wrecking the climate, the CO2 energy view has the benefit of the focus that it's just about replacing gigawatts. We can replace a gigawatt coal station with a gigawatt of something else and just do that over and over. Uh, you can solve the problem in a way that seems more technocratic and less political, but that kind of vision doesn't motivate and speak to people in the same way. That's a helpful distinction. How would you describe the divestment movement's evolution over the years uh, that you covered uh, the research, or they, or over the years of, that you researched? As I mentioned, and perhaps contrary to most expectations, I don't see a simple common pattern in how campaigns have evolved over time. I think the contest between these two worldviews has been ever present in the movement and it hasn't resolved decisively one way or the, or the other. I would say there's probably more self-conscious awareness now about the tensions between confrontational and cooperative approaches and between worldviews. Um, I don't see a simple pattern like most campaigns becoming more or less radical over time or even in response to the actions that their universities have taken. You might think, if a university does something a little bit good, the campaign becomes more cooperative. If the university does something a little bit bad, the campaign becomes less cooperative. But there really isn't such a tight linkage between what campaigns do and what universities do. Uh, the universities pay attention in a very limited way. 
and more, I would say, to the movement as a whole than the specific demands of their local campaign. And in terms of how the groups make decisions, they're volunteer organizations and they're often very small. So the tactics they favor uh, tend to shift based on who's present and making decisions at a given point. One of the things I talk about in my dissertation is many of these campaigns go through crisis moments, which are either their demands being rejected by the university or core organizers graduating. And when campaigns rebuild after this for the new group of people, you may well see a shift in what tactics or messaging they favor just because different people with a different theory of change are making the decisions. But the idea that the movement as a whole has shifted in one direction or another hasn't been supported by what I've examined. Another indication of how the university doesn't necessarily pay the closest attention to what activists do in any given month. After the U of T 350 campaign ended in 2016, literally for at least three or four years afterward, I would talk to faculty members at U of T who asked me, oh, what's the group working on now? How's the campaign going? So the idea there's a very tight linkage between what activists asked for this month and what the university does next month and what activists do in response isn't well aligned with the patterns of interaction we've seen in the divestment movement in Canada. Right. It sort of ends up being more about how the overarching feeling and, and vibe is, which is interesting because it, what's funny about that is that sort of goes to this back to that sort of question about the value in the, of a larger movement. And the more often that the, the movement grows, the more often that you get conversations around other places having these conversations, each one of those probably comes back a little bit, maybe even more effectively to the university than any individual action at your own university. And that the sort of growth of the movement as a whole, you know, through, through different techniques might end up actually having a larger impact on what the university does than any single action at the university itself. Yeah, that's what's, I think, so promising or what's been so successful about the campaign in a box strategy because there are hundreds of campaigns around the world basically asking for the same thing. Universities sort of respond to the demands of the movement as a whole rather than individual campaigns. And they feel much more pressure than they would if it was just a group of students unconnected with anyone else who came up with this program individually. You saw the eventual successful push for divestment at U of T firsthand. I mean, if you consider it successful, given that I think to this day, they still have not fully divested. Um, I believe they've said they will, but I don't think they've actually completed it yet, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm curious how you would tell that story, sort of from beginning to eventual capitulation from, from U of T, though, of course, the fight continues, as you mentioned, through climate justice U of T and in other, other areas. To start with on implementation, at the fossil fuel research teach-in that I was at yesterday, part of their presentation was that U of T says they have divested from direct holdings in the fossil fuel industry and that they will divest from indirect holdings by 2030. But secrecy has always been a core part of their response to the campaign. And they haven't disclosed what do they sell, what do they still have. Uh, so tracking implementation is a challenge for campaigns that have been quote unquote successful. The, the, the word I would object to in your question more than successful is push. I'd say calling it a push is maybe misleading. Earlier this week, I mentioned the, the podcast with second generation divestment leaders at U of T, and they didn't know who, but several panelists took for granted that there was a highly active campaign that led to President Gertler's reversal in October 2021. Uh, and I didn't see that, and I don't think it's true. Certainly, there were ongoing efforts. The Leap Manifesto uh, campaign was targeting uh, federated colleges and the Divestment and Beyond campaign was active. And within the faculty, um, there were people who were supportive of the divestment concept. But it wasn't like there was a mountaintop of activist pressure that we reached the summit and that's what led to this capitulation. And this challenges the basic narratives from 350.org and other activist groups who see that wins are the result of piling on more and more pressure. The pressure really hasn't been so great since 2016. So what explains the 2021 decision has to be something else. Uh, maybe what the experience shows is that well-supported ideas introduced patiently can eventually be internalized by resistant organizations, especially when their peers are undergoing the same evolution. We did our own effort at a debrief on where that reversal came from. And I would say that convincing explanations include more peer schools have acted, 
you know, to be the very first to act takes bravery. And in a way, being the very last to act takes bravery too, because you're outside the mainstream. I would say that bravery or courage is something that U of T has rarely displayed in its decision-making. So following some, some more prominent places that have made the commitment is a partial explanation. As I mentioned, the campaign developed hard to see support within the faculty and administration. And particularly, U of T was launching this new Defy Gravity $4 billion fundraising campaign. And it includes themes, including healthy lives, a sustainable future, and the next generation. And I'm sure listeners can imagine that the parodies and protests write themselves if they're continuing to refuse to divest from fossil fuels. You could also say that the way divestment was done in 2021 did not challenge the legitimacy, expertise, or compensation of the university's investment managers. They were able to preserve the secrecy that stops anyone from questioning their advice and avoid the awkward suggestion that amateur students who are not investment experts can give better advice than they can. All told, I'd call this a story about persuasion rather than forcing universities to do something which they otherwise never would. Also, 2021 is also was, a, was a, quite a year. I don't know if anyone else lived through that year. And so the idea that there could have been a huge you know, push from the activists at all during that year would be almost difficult to imagine. And yet it was also the year when oil was at such a boon of availability at the beginning of 2021 that they were trying to give it away for free. It was losing money as it was sitting out in tankers. And so curious to see how many different of these little pieces sort of end up becoming the, the shift, you know. And I feel like I could kind of get an answer to this question already, but I'm going to ask it anyways, which is that would your sort of more broad research indicate that U of T's experience is, is similar to other universities? And is there anything that sort of stands out to you? Of course, every campaign has idiosyncrasies and distinctive features. A few that I would mention for U of T, it began early, essentially at the same time as other first wave campaigns in response to uh, McKibben's Rolling Stone article and Do the Math Tour. Toronto350.org was a citywide chapter that, you know, had started off to resist the Enbridge Line 9 pipeline and generally advance um, climate change mitigation in Toronto. So it wasn't specifically created for a divestment campaign, though one of those did split out later. Another factor that I think influenced the U of T experience was how U of T350.org chose to take part in Joe Kerno's PhD dissertation research which meant um, holding their planning meetings in a room where everyone could be recorded from multiple angles. And then she was able to do discussions and debriefs with people about how those meetings had gone. She also created a women's caucus and used a, quote, militant ethnography, which, quote, extends the commitments of community-based research and situates researchers within the social movements they participate in. So I'd say that's likely part of why people perceive the U of T campaign as more conflictual than others. It made this climate justice, CO2 energy tensions more acute and visible than in other campaigns. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. So what would you say you've learned from your research that you think would be useful for folks? You know, not every university has divested. And so I'm curious what you would, for those working on divestment or, you know, even some of the next, next stage divestment work, 
what would you say you've learned that you think it'd be helpful for them to, to know? Yeah. If you really want the answers, obviously read, read the dissertation. There is a wrap up and summary in the conclusion. My normative argument, so my argument about what's right or what ought to be done in the dissertation says that building a sufficient coalition to deal with climate change requires winning over more than just progressives. There are different exact figures, but of the total population, the share who are real progressives in the U.S. and Canada, it's less than 20%. So I would say that climate justice advocates have not adequately internalized this concern. They tend to focus on aligning with people who largely or completely agree with them more than on winning support uh, from the general population for specific policies and issues. So the big challenge for the climate justice side is the danger of only being exposed to people who pretty much totally agree with you and being misled into thinking that means most of the population agrees with you. My favorite example of this is the claim from the Occupy movement, we are the 99%, which I think is transparently untrue. If they had actually had 99% support in a democracy, we would have seen political parties advocating the policy positions that Occupy was calling for. We would have seen movement in public policy toward the redistribution and other things that they wanted. It's very easy as an activist only exposed to other activists to think that you're kind of in the political mainstream uh, when you really aren't. So going back to that point about focus versus motivation, I would say that each of these worldviews is missing something crucial. The CO2 energy perspective has long suffered from how hard it is psychologically and politically to motivate people using that kind of an agenda. But ultimately, people don't care that much whether the power from their wall socket comes from a wind turbine or a coal plant. Um, it doesn't have the same kind of emotional resonance as a campaign for climate justice. But the climate justice perspective offers little specific guidance on why the the revolution that they want is feasible, how they're going to get the support to actually do it, and how it would even help with climate change. Because the usefulness of fossil fuels doesn't really depend on your economic system. You know, I talk a bit about counterfactuals in my dissertation, and I say it's perfectly possible to imagine a world or an alien civilization where many of these forms of injustice and discrimination don't exist but where they discover geologic reserves of fossil fuels and that they're enormously more energy dense than anything readily available and you can carry them around in vehicles and stuff. Fossil fuels are just objectively very useful. So um, there needs to be more explanation of why, for instance, getting rid of capitalism would lead to people exclusively using non-fossil energy. There's a part there that I wanna sort of pick at for a second, taking those sort of two options. One option is a is a challenge of a vision. I think there's been a growing understanding that you sort of can't build a movement exclusively out of saying no, and you must find sort of ways. And we've been talking a lot about the show actually about finding new ways to to provide a more holistic, positive vision uh, for for a climate justice uh, viewpoint. And to me, that strikes me as a much easier track than exists for the zero carbon people because. Even if we decarbonize energy, if we don't solve overconsumption, which does more strongly, I think, tie to sort of a capitalist structure, there's only so far we'll get there even, right? Like at some point we will get stuck at the trying to create enough energy, even clean energy, to be able to, to live in that world. So I'm curious, as you see sort of like, how do you actually see us winning? Or, or is that sort of not a part of your research? That's not really necessarily what you sort of are, this is a divestment specific conversation. How are we going to win? Nobody knows. It's literally unknowable. We've never had a problem like this before. I think that militates in favor of pursuing multiple approaches simultaneously, both in terms of the actual energy we build and politically. One narrative that I think can emerge and that could be extremely helpful is fighting climate change to preserve what people value. I've been reading Jost on system justification theory. And people have this incredibly strong psychological urge to believe that the universe is orderly and basically just. And if you threaten that belief, they feel psychologically motivated to protect it um, by challenging the, the counterclaims. So what people are taking for granted on the political right is 
that the status quo can keep going for another 50 years, another 100 years, that you're going to have the kind of stability and economic growth and strength that we've seen, say, in the last 50 years. Uh, but that's just not justified. If you want to maintain the world more or less like it is now, it's absolutely vital to replace fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And I think there's the prospect for making that kind of case. I think politically, the most necessary thing right now is a kind of rescue mission into conservatism, where in conservatism, you have at least some people who are empiricists, which means they look at the evidence of what's happening in the world and they adjust their beliefs in response to it. And then there are fantasists who have an idealized vision of how politics ought to be, and they choose the facts they believe based on that ideology. And at present, the fantasists are in control in Canada, the US, and the UK. Conservative parties have their climate denial and delay positions um, because of how that's happened. But it's possible uh, on the basis of uh, several arguments, including the hope of preserving stability, uh, to appeal to people who are not progressive, but to put it into the context of an appealing holistic vision rather than this technical question of how many gigawatts of this versus gigawatts of that. On the question of growth and the whole uh, objection that you can't have unlimited growth on a finite planet, et cetera, it's, it's true, but at what point it kicks in is, it's not known. So uh, one book that I would highly recommend is David McKay's Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, which is available for free at withouthotair.com. Uh, and what he did was he went through all of the areas in society that we use energy, everything from producing the steel girders that go in the buildings that we live in to growing our crops and transport and everything else. He assesses how much more efficient those things could plausibly be made. And then he goes through all the options that we have for generating that energy whether you want to use fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage or nuclear or renewables or a mixture of those, you can produce an answer that works. Uh, it's just a question of adding it all up. So McKay says that with some efficiency improvements, everybody can live a high energy quality lifestyle at about 125 kilowatt hours per day, which is pretty much the average in the European Union. So if you want to not just replace that in the rich world, for people who already have uh, high energy lifestyles, but you want to spread that globally because both ethically and practically, there's no way you're going to tell India and China and everyone else you can't develop. If you want to replace the global energy system to give everybody that 125 kilowatt hours per day, you need something like 45,000 gigawatt power stations, which is something we would have to do anyway. Fossil fuel plants don't function forever. At the end of their lives, you have to replace them with something. That's where this whole argument about stranded assets becomes so powerful. If you look at the Stern review on the economics of climate change, he estimated that if we do this efficiently, we just replace things when they're worn out and they need to be replaced with the right new stuff, then for 2% of GDP, you could stabilize atmospheric concentrations of CO2 below 450 parts per million. He pointed out that that's literally less than people in the UK spend per year on lunch, provided you do it efficiently. So I think that there's scope for um, a vision of, you could even call it a form of climate justice or energy justice that incorporates global development, that incorporates how people are not going to give up elements of a lifestyle that they now consider normal or that they're entitled to. At the basic level of can we build enough non-fossil energy to give lives like those in the developed world to everyone on earth? There's no question that we can't. There's more than enough renewable and other energy options, provided we have the determination to do it. I guess the, the climate justice advocate in me hears that argument, and I agree. It sounds great. Like everyone using that amount of energy is is perfectly. It sounds like a it sounds like a great life for me. That most people in my position, you know, if you're living here in Toronto, the idea of living roughly the same lifestyle on a planet that's not dying is a pretty good, pretty good bet. But the people who lose in that world are the, are the 1%, are the people who lose are the people who are advocating and keeping and trying to push for the maintenance of a capitalist system that sort of is currently, meaning that they can you know, fly private jets everywhere and stuff like that. And so I'm curious in your mind how we get to that world of climate, uh, of climate equity or, or, or energy equity 
without addressing sort of the, 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 inequ the inequity that exists right now in the fact that there are these super users of energy that create the energy poverty for, for the others. So as kind of a stage setting for my dissertation, there was a section that I wanted to include, but which my committee made me cut for length, but which is available online, listing the structural barriers to climate change action. Why is this such a hard problem to solve? And that kind of goes from level to level, from psychological to institutional to international. Psychologically, there are reasons that climate change, you know, it's, it's so slow, it's not intentional, you don't have a close relationship between cause and effect. There are lots of psychological barriers. There are institutional barriers. Who, who has political power? Who influences the political process? And what you're identifying is, yeah, of course, there are wealthy, affluent people with disproportionate political um, influence. And as I said, there's no guarantee we're going to be able to solve this problem. I can easily imagine a situation where globally, as the climate gets more and more disrupted, our political responses become more dysfunctional rather than more inclined toward cooperation. And if every country starts going it on its own, trying to do the best it can, assuming everyone else is going to keep burning fossil fuels, I mean, that's sort of the, the tragedy of the commons problem that's so central to, to climate change. How you overcome the influence of those who want to maintain a fossil fuel status quo is something we're all working on. But elements of that include pointing out how much is threatened by climate change. Like the bulk of global culture, civilization, and infrastructure is around the seafront and on navigable rivers. So if we're going to melt the West Antarctic ice sheet in Greenland and raise sea levels by meters and meters, you're literally flooding much of what humanity has built since the dawn of time, which shouldn't appeal to conservatives either. And there are people like Catherine Hayhoe who are, are really seriously working on this question of when it comes to people who don't, don't come into the, the conversation accepting that getting rid of capitalism would be good, people with different values and political philosophies. The point she makes in, in her book, Saving Us, and some of her talks is it's almost impossible to make somebody want to fight climate change for the exact reasons that you do, but you can show why their existing preferences and values require them to do so. So while we certainly can't take for granted that it's possible or that it's going to happen, there are some promising avenues for convincing people that to maintain what they value, to advance the political ideals that they hold, getting rid of fossil fuels is going to be necessary. Thank you. So I have two last questions, which as we're coming up to basically the whole show, um, I'm going to ask them together. And so you can answer them back to back, which is lastly, this question of like, you've researched the last eight years, likely as much as almost anyone else has. What do you sort of see as the future of the divestment campaign? And then how can folks uh, find your dissertation and learn more? As I mentioned, I was at the Fossil Free Research Teaching yesterday, uh, and there's a narrative about the movement that to begin with, it was all this technocratic stuff, but then everyone realized climate justice was important, and now it's a climate justice movement. Um, based on what I saw at the teach-in, there are definitely still uh, people who see the value of, uh, of talking to the university in its own terms and making incremental progress, and that's within Climate Justice Toronto. So uh, that those two worldviews, one isn't totally eclipsing the other. I would say that there are divergent futures within the divestment movement generally. The impetus for the movement in part was dealing with how our domestic political systems, our democratic systems have not been able to address climate change. So people are looking at other targets, private institutions like investors. But one major US offshoot, the Sunrise Movement, is focused on electoral politics and on electing champions of the climate justice agenda. There are some offshoot and parallel movements uh, that focus on much more confrontational tactics. I'm sure everyone's seen the Extinction Rebellion and similar groups in uh, the UK and Europe. Some former divestment advocates have gone into academia and started working on building institutional memory for the movement. And some have committed to staying focused on building the right sort of energy, joining the energy sector, working for governments, regulators, and think tanks. As opposed to the people, I think it's very clear that the ideas of the movement have exploded since 2012. Uh, 
the idea of not burning all the world's fossil fuels, I would say even in 2012 was still niche. I, I personally had arguments with 350 supporters who were supporters of 350, which is named after stabilizing the atmospheric concentration of CO2 at 350 parts per million. But when, when I talked to them said, well, you know, actually abolishing fossil fuels is impossible. Now the idea that fossil fuels should be left in the ground is routinely discussed journalistically and politically, which is a big development. Similarly, the ideas of the carbon bubble and stranded assets are discussed daily in the press and by world leaders. The World Bank is talking about it. BlackRock and big investors are talking about it. Uh, financial regulators, central banks are talking about it. So it's been very effective at spreading those ideas. But of course, the fossil fuel industry keeps developing protective narratives for itself. Maybe uh, the most prominent current example, I would say, is net zero, which is this idea, you know, you don't need to abolish fossil fuels. We can somehow like even it out, you know, like I'll drink a beer and then I'll have a bundle of cocaine and I'm, I'm beer zero at the end of it. You know, it's, it's another way of preventing immediate action and justifying continued investment. And the depth of buy-in to that is, is considerable. So people in environmental circles were already concerned about climate change in 2012, but I'd say it's very different in terms of the population now. You know, I attend lectures in totally different fields, like astronomy, where all of a sudden there are emotional asides about the climate crisis and what it means for young people. You know, I've heard numerous stories about people going to talk to their professors or climate scientists saying, I'm not sure if I should have children given the direction the world is going in. Uh, that concern has become very acute and widespread. Um, so to wrap up, my dissertation is freely available on my website, uh, sindark.com, S-I-N-D-A-R-K. I highly recommend Climate Justice Toronto's podcast series about the U of T campaign. The first two episodes of that are out, including one just this week, and it's on their website and Spotify. And I recommend Amanda Harvey Sanchez's article in Briarpatch about the history of the U of T campaign, including a timeline on it. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Milan Ilnitsky, a recent PhD grad uh, doing the thesis on defense movement between 2012 and 2020. Always love talking to, a, to an academic to learn sort of what the research implies and in, in your thinking on it. So I appreciate you coming on the show and have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. 